You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk with young, brilliant, diverse philosophers as they give their take on the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Justin Clardy. Justin is a doctoral student at the University of Arkansas, specializing in moral philosophy with an emphasis on the philosophy of love. He has written on the nature of romantic love, marriage and commitment, on tenderness and polymory. His belief is that if we come to understand what love is, we can begin to address some of our social and political concerns. So black philosophers make up 1% of all philosophers in the United States. How did you, a young black man from Los Angeles, get interested in philosophy? I read the Euthyphro in college, and I had it taught to me by a guy named Lucas Mather. And it was a pretty interesting class experience. And also over the course of that philosophy class, it was like the first course that challenged me. So I went to school in Com- uh, elementary school in Compton, and I went to uh, high school in Gardena, and school was just easy for me for a while. Um, and I was kind of lazy, did what I needed to do to get like B's or whatever. And it drove my teachers crazy for whatever reason. They would always like talk to my parents and try to, you know, motivate me to do more because though I wasn't getting bad grades in a sense, uh, they could see that I guess I was like, you know, lackadaisically going through it, going through the motions. But when I met philosophy and, you know, had to grapple with some of the questions, for instance, that were raised like in the youth of Fro or in the other readings that we were reading over the course of that semester, it was like, um, yeah, I can do this. This is kind of challenging. This is difficult. It annoyed the hell out of my friends and my romantic partner at the time because I would always take these questions back like, so what do you think about this? You know what I'm saying? But uh, and they would be like and then they would say something that I would have just said in class or whatever. And then I would respond how my professor would and be like, well, what do you think about this? You know what I mean? So um, it was like the first first subject that really challenged me. But also, I think that being groomed in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, California, was a large part of that as well. I think that um, as a result of that, I've had a lot of experiences that readied me for becoming a professional philosopher later in life and particularly a philosopher of love. So you study the philosophy of love. So I'm going to ask you a question that I know that you get a lot. And that question, Justin, is what is love? I don't know. I'm the wrong person to ask. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Dude, I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, But but, uh, I think the answer to that question is going to vary depending upon what kind of love we're talking about first. uh, most often when I get that question, people are meaning romantic love. But of course, we must acknowledge that there are other forms of love other than romantic love, like the love between friends or love between uh, parent and child, for instance, or student and teacher, right, or coworker or mm-hmm. citizens. Um, so there's all of these different kinds of love. And I don't think that in, e- in each mode that they have the same, that they admit to being the same thing. Okay. So when it comes to romantic love... Um, I think that romantic love is having a particular regard for a person and a particular regard for your relationship with that person and to value both of them in a way as to 
provide you with reasons and sometimes special reasons for action. Okay. So basically you have a relationship with a person and a person that means so much to you as to provide you with reasons for action. Um, it's, 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 it's valuing your relationship with a person in a certain kind of way okay. and it's valuing that person in a certain kind of way. Okay. And that person, because of that value, then that person then, or that relationship gives me a reason to act. Right. Exactly. Okay. So I have a, I have a reason to buy them flowers, right? Yeah. Right. I, I have a reason to call them every day. <laughs> I have a reason to tell them that I love you and give them all these, right. um, you know, things that they need. And this is based exactly. on the value exactly. that I have towards them. And, and does, does that definition fit? I know you, you were saying uh, about romantic love. Does that fit when it comes to, let's say, uh, the love between a mother and her child? Yes, I think so. But it's important to know that when we're talking about relationships themselves, we could be talking about two kinds. We could be talking about attitude-dependent relationships and attitude-independent relationships. So an attitude-dependent an attitude dependent relationship is a, is a relationship where whether or not there is a relationship between the people that are said to be within that relationship depend upon some attitudes that those people have toward one another. So I can't be said to be Sally's girlfriend or boyfriend, right? Unless uh, there's exists some attitude towards Sally that, you know, holds that, Hey, I'm Sally's boyfriend. Yeah. Right? But in attitude independent relationships, the relationship itself does not depend on the attitudes of the people within that relationship. So you might have Bob and Sally who are brother and sister, right? Now, you know, Bob might get mad at Sally and 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 like say, "Oh, man, you're not my sister no more." Right? Mm -hmm. But they have a biological tie, and the biological tie is uh, what binds their relationship in a certain kind of way. And that binding does not depend on any attitude that the two participants have. Okay. So Bob will always be Sally's sister, even when he's pissed off or mad at Sally. Okay. I wonder which of those relationships do you think are a little bit more complicated? Because, you know, Ooh. I think about Facebook, for example, <laughs> and usually, you know, they ask, are you in a relationship? And we know that Facebook is really asking, are you in a romantic relationship? And I don't know if this is still an option, but it used to be the case that the option would be it's complicated. And that's only mm -hmm. relating to romantic relationships. But I found in my years of living that some of the most complicated relationships is really those relationships, which you call interdependent. The attitude, independent relationships. Independent relationships, yes. Yep. Between family members. Um, mm -hmm. and so I wonder, do you feel the same way? And if so, why? Good. I think I feel kind of similar. Um, I don't want to say that family member, family relationships and say friendship or romantic relationships, one admits to being more difficult than the other, because what it seems like to me is that each come with them, their own set of problems, okay. as well as their own set of like triumphs and, and successes. So they're just, I, I tend to look at them as just different sorts of relationships. I like to look at relationships in a sense, individually, as opposed to saying, okay, well, look, here's this class of relationships that will all admit to universally having these characteristics such that the only good types of family relationships are the ones that admit to X, Y, and Z. I don't know if a good family relationship admits to having such a formula, nor do I think that a good romantic relationship 
admit to having such a formula. I remember a song a few years ago that was out by Music Soul Child. And uh, it's probably one of my favorite songs by him, Teach Me How to Love. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, it's a beautiful ballad. <laughs> but after listening to it so many times, I thought to myself, really? If you can't love by now, I don't know what I can teach you. So I, I wonder, Justin, do you think love can be taught? Hmm. Well, insofar as love involves this particular valuing, I don't know if you can teach a person how to value. But I do think that maybe if not love itself being taught, that other things that we tend to associate with love can be taught. So like certain patterns of behavior that might be caring or tender or compassionate, right? So maybe even if we can't be taught how to love, we can be taught how to be nice, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to say whether or not love can be taught because I do think that if you come from a certain family or if you, you know have had certain sorts of school experiences or whatever, that it might put you in a position to be a better lover later or a worse lover later. But again, that's going to be hard to say because I tend to think that at least when it comes to romantic love, that the success of that love will not depend upon my matching some set of conditions that are independent of me, but instead it will depend upon the level of satisfaction that my partner tends to receive from me. Okay. And that's something that is just kind of hard to say can be taught because I don't know who my partner will be or so on and so forth. Do you think there's a difference between loving and being in love? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Most commonly, though, in how we use the term, we use the term to signal, I think, a distinct mode of love when we say being in love. And that mode is usually romantic love. But more generally, a person can love. That is, they can have this particular regard for a person in their relationship with another person without being said to romantically love them. I think that friends do this uh, most commonly. But um, also, you know, you have, again, other forms of love like family love or parental love. So there, I think, is a difference between simply loving and being in love, whereas we use the term being in love to designate or to ident or to um, signal uh, romantic relationships or romantic involvement. But I must, I must admit that in my life, I've loved my romantic partners, but I wasn't necessarily in love with all of them. And so how can mm -hmm. you explain that? I think that the mode of being in love itself, right, can vary. Remember, it's a particular valuation that I said about uh, you know how you value this person in your relationship with this person, but that might not always be the same. I mean, our partners in the course of a relationship behave in ways that give us reasons to, not in a sense value them as people less, but right, it might give us reasons to value our particular type of relationship with them a little bit less. So I don't think that it's uncommon that if we're if we've been in love romantically to at some later point, it also being true that we say, oh, well, no, I just love this person. Right. I think that love is not something that is permanent, but it can go back and forth. You can uh, depending upon the reasons that you have, because insofar as love involves providing a person with reasons for action, we have to realize that some of those reasons would imply that the action should be that we break up with a particular person, right? But if if, if we can have a t that type of reason in a romantic relationship, I don't think that it would be too far of a stretch to also think that we could have a reason in a romantic relationship that causes us to value the relationship with that person a little bit less.
Now you've given several talks about these two topics that we're about to discuss. And so I can't wait okay. to give, you know, to hear <laughs> your perspective on this. What is your view on monogamy? Ah, uh, yes. Um, monogamy. Um, <laughs> well, it's always interesting. Uh, people wanting to hear my perspective on monogamy. Um, a lot of times people might have read what I've wrote uh, in a particular blog post, uh, Marriage and Commitment, and think that I'm uh, anti-monogamy. Or they might, you know, see the YouTube on Polyamory that I did uh, at the University of Arkansas and say, oh, he's anti-monogamy. But I think that's a misunderstanding, and I'll try my best to uh, explain. Okay. Now, I think when it comes to monogamy, it's a type of romantic relationship, but by no means is it the only type of romantic relationship. And I also don't think that it's the only type of romantic relationship that is valuable. Now, we got to be careful if we think that monogamous romantic relationships are the only type of romantic relationships that are valuable. Because a similar thing has been said throughout history about heterosexual relationships, right, which mm -hmm. has excluded uh, the homosexual community uh, as well as other alternative um, relationship styles uh, in their communities. So when we're saying that monogamy is the only type of valuable relationship, we want to be sure that we're not saying uh, something similar. We have to look at that claim. Well, if monogamy is the only thing that... Uh, the only type of romantic relationship that is valuable. Well, what is it about a monogamous relationship that makes it the only type of valuable relationship? And if other types of relationships can be said to admit these characteristics, we have to realize, okay, that they're not different or they should be treated similarly or the same. So a lot of times people point to the value of monogamy being held by commitment because I'm committed to this partner. When you're with only one person, that shows that you can be committed. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that there are actually polyamorous couples. And I, what that word really means is that uh, these are people who uh, have more than one open romantic relationship at a time uh, where they can actually be said to be loving more than their one partner or two partners or three partners. And also what will be what is found in these relationships sometimes is that there are commitments present within them. Right. A triad, a polyamorous couple of, say, three people might commit to one another to not add a fourth person um, or a quad, a polyamorous couple of four people might commit to one another as to not include a fifth person, right? So yeah, these would be different types of commitments or alternative commitments, but commitments nonetheless. And they would seem to be the case that um, we could have multiple commitments to our friends. We can have multiple commitments to our children if we have uh, more than one child. So it's hard to argue that when it comes to romantic relationship, the only type of commitment that we can see exhibited there is to one person. So I'm not anti-monogamy. I think that actually my perspective allows me to, uh, to be tolerant of monogamous relationships and be like, yeah, that's cool. It's, that's if that's what you're into. But it also it says, hey, polyamorous and homosexuals and asexuals and all of these other alternative relationship styles, y'all are cool too. Whereas what I found most uh, prevalent in the society is this harsh attitude toward persons who might find themselves having polyamorous desires or, you know, clinging so highly to the value of monogamy that they ostracize and exclude other individuals without having considered them or their feelings.
again, they don't have conditions in them independent of the people that are in them. If me and a partner or if Bob and Sally, right, are fine with including Susan, there can't be anything that I can say as an external observer about their arrangement that means that it's less valuable. I might not prefer that arrangement myself, but I find a hard time saying, hey, yeah, you guys' arrangement is flawed and you cannot be said to being in love in the same way as I am. Yeah. What do you think about swingers? And particularly those who are married. So not just in a relationship and they're deciding to have sexual relations with other people that are in a relationship, particularly married couples that engage in, in, in a swinger lifestyle. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Um, again, I think that terms of a relationship ought to be left to the participants of that relationship. I have a very hard time with external persons telling people within a relationship how they should behave within their relationship. I can't tell, for instance, my brother and his romantic partner, hey, you guys should be doing it like this. Like, dude, that's your relationship. Mm -hmm. I have no, that's not my jurisdiction. Right. I, I really can't say. So if you guys don't have a problem with, you know, having sex with persons outside of one another, I can't really say that that's wrong or that that type of activity is contrary to the way that you all value one another within your relationship. And I think that we do so so often without considering what we're saying. We, we do so so often without considering what we're saying and how it's affecting the people that these comments are aimed at. Swingers have feelings too, right? And to be the recipient of harsh treatment on the basis of their romantic preference is no different, I think, or it's different in some regards, but it's, it's not entirely different than us treating persons who might be homosexual or lesbian differently on the basis of their romantic preferences, right? We have to sort of be careful when we make those claims and we look for justification for those claims, yet can't find it. So let's get into the political side of things. What, what is the role okay. of, of love in politics for you? And to answer this question, we got to realize that societies are full of emotions. Um, they're made up of citizens who are people who have emotions. So we already have governments, governmental institutions that can and do affect the emotions of the of the citizens within a particular society. What some of these things are, are, you know, how we're taught about, you know, Columbus in schools or how we sing the national anthem in schools or say the Pledge of Allegiance, the holidays that we celebrate, the public parks, right? Uh, a space where people can come together and, 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 and you know, uh, partake in one another's company in, in a safe civic space. So th these are institutions that we already have within the government. And what we have to realize is that in just the same way as listening to, you know, Big Sean or, or Yeezy make you feel some kind of way when you feel it, you know, when you when you're listening to it, that singing a national anthem also evokes a certain type of emotion uh, in a citizen that gears that emotion toward the country as its object. Right. It makes you feel a certain kind of way about your country. And if we're saying that love is an emo emotion as well, then it might be possible for us to use these very same government institutions to inspire in people or to cultivate in people these emotions that are more favorable to love, right? Like compassion, like tenderness, like um, um, care and sympathy. So yeah, I think that 
insofar as we all tend to value love, it can have a proper place in the society. And one way we could bring it about would be to use our institutions to cultivate these sorts of things. Who is the greatest philosopher of love musically? Um, Sade. So let's say you have to teach a philosophy of love class based on a movie. You have two choices. Love Jones or Love and Basketball. Which one would you use? I would go with Love Jones. Uh, I can identify more with how the dating relationships in that movie go, yeah. personally. Yeah. Um, and I think that for that reason, if I was teaching the class, I'd have more things to say in relation to that movie than in Love and Basketball. Although I've been in those types of relationships as well. Yeah, younger ages. What is the greatest love lesson you've ever learned? And I think that, that side probably says a lot. Yeah, that was <laughs> that right there. You know what I'm saying? That, right? Um, but really, honestly, that I'll never know all of what I once thought I knew about it. Um, and that is to say that I've found myself mistaken or fallible time and time again. Um, and not only my own loving relationships, but in what I think about loving relationships. Now, I know I'm saying that at the end of the podcast, and people are like, oh, Grace, we don't got to listen to everything this month just said. You know what I mean? <laughs> I listen to what he just said. He says he don't know what he's talking about. But I tried to start off the podcast kind of in saying that too, because I think that while it might sound empty, I think it is a pretty profound lesson. Um, because taking with you that humility into your romantic relationships which was difficult for me insofar as I take myself to be an expert on love, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That that the expert must realize that they don't, they will never know as much as they th once thought they knew, I, I would hope. Um, Erica Badu says, uh, the man that knows something knows that he knows nothing at all. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it it's analogous to that, just with my love relationships. I think that's true though. I mean, I think that's a, that's a good answer, right? I mean. To realize you just don't you just don't know it all, and I think relationships are mirrors. I've learned this in grad school, uh, yeah, fifteen years ago, that when we enter into relationships, they show us who we are, and I think yeah. they also show us just how much we don't know, right? And I think that's right. that's that's. I mean, I think that's also the approach to philosophy, right? I think the more that we learn about philosophy, the more we learn that we don't know, and I think I think Socrates said this, right? And I think that's also the case each time we enter into a relationship. I think it shows us the reality is that we don't know as much as we thought we knew. And I think that humility is very, very important that each each relationship that we enter into, we learn how ignorant we are. We grab some content. We grab some information um, in there. But I think it shows us just how, how much we don't know. And that is a humbling experience. And I think why it's humbling, though, is because it, and I think you said said it perfectly. We do. We are shown what we don't know. And, a lot, and like you said, we learn what we're learning about, like if relationships or mirrors are ourselves. Yeah. So we're actually shown what we don't know about ourselves, which is kind of crazy because we're ourselves our entire lives. So the idea that there's there could be something about my own self that I don't yet know about myself is it's I don't, if that doesn't humble you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's why I mean, maybe Aristotle may not have the spirit, but it makes me kind of rethink 
Aristotle notion about how we're all social creatures, right? We're political animals, right? And I think right. kind of what he's getting at is that we come to, I mean, not only is our involvement with other people contributes to society, but as far as epistemically, like we know ourselves, you know, we become better <laughs> and we can become better only by knowing ourselves when we enter into community with other people. And that happens in our relationships with other people. So I think he was kind of spot on about that notion of our need to be or the need to be social animals, because in doing that, we get knowledge about ourselves. And in doing that, we become better people. For sure. For sure. No, that's right. That's right. Thank you, Justin, for joining us on the Unmute podcast. I learned a lot. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was good. Thank you for having me. I mean, it was fun, really. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.